Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Victoria Buttery, PhD. Dr. Buttery is a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice based in San Diego. She specializes in treating PTSD and trauma-related distress using evidence-based approaches and integrating the client's faith into the healing process. She was previously a staff psychologist at VA San Diego Healthcare System, served as the facility's PTSD director, and held a faculty appointment at UCSD. She has trained and supervised many psychology interns and residents, given talks locally and nationally, and helped clinics implement national guidelines for best practices for providing quality, evidence-based PTSD treatment. Today, we talk about what is PTSD. Welcome, Dr. Buttery. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you can be on today because I know that your main specialty is working with PTSD and trauma. And... I've wanted to have an episode to focus on that and discuss treatments and what trauma is and what PTSD is for a while. So I'm glad that you're here to help discuss with us and share your expertise. Great to be here. Maybe the first question that we can start with is what is trauma? Good place to start because I think trauma is a word that's becoming more commonly used now. But when we're talking in the mental health field, there's really a traditional definition that's used often as an event that someone either experiences themselves or witnesses or learns about happening to somebody close to them, or it could be something that they're repeatedly exposed to in even their job. I'll talk about that in a little bit, but has to do with actual or threatened death or serious injury or a kind of violation of bodily integrity. That's kind of a mouthful. We'll give some examples of that in a second, but really these types of things can happen to a person of any age. So examples that we think about for trauma could be experiencing or witnessing somebody being physically or sexually abused or assaulted, combat experiences, being in a place where there's violence happening all around you. So community, gun violence, prison settings, serious accidents, medical events, fires, first responders responding to things. These are all different types of trauma. And then things we don't often think about or really experience in the U.S. are things like torture and genocide are also experiences of trauma as well. I used to work at the VA. And so a lot of people would just automatically associate trauma and combat, trauma and combat, but really it's so much broader than that. And the thing that I see a lot is, I mean, trauma happens, unfortunately, sadly, a lot in childhood too, that I think kind of gets overlooked. So childhood trauma is a very real thing um, and can have long-term implications for many people as well. But that is, even though it's a lot, it's a little bit more of a narrower definition. And there's some movement in the field a little bit. People are talking about other experiences can be trauma or traumatizing things like being bullied as a kid or kind of emotional neglect or betrayal, being cheated on, infidelity by your spouse. And certainly those things can be really impactful. There's a quote by a famous physician who said, trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to you. There's some debate about how we really define it. It's more really semantic, but that just gives us a general idea of what we're talking about with the term trauma. 
And then some of the listeners may have heard of the term complex trauma, which really what that means is trauma that's happening on a prolonged and really repeated basis. So if somebody's experiencing kind of ongoing childhood abuse or ongoing intimate partner violence, that can be considered a complex trauma because it's often happening. One, it may be a developmentally vulnerable age if they're you know, a child or in the context of a relationship where there ideally should be some safety in the form of kind of intimate partner violence. So that's kind of complex trauma. So that's that's our large talk about what is trauma. Then what is PTSD then? Because when you think about trauma, you also think about PTSD. And does all trauma lead to PTSD? Good question. So I'll start with two of the common misconceptions that I typically see in my practice when it comes to PTSD. So one is kind of what you said. A lot of people maybe assume that if I experience trauma and I'm struggling with someone, I'm having these certain symptoms, that must mean I have PTSD. That's not actually the case. We know that many people, I think the latest numbers are something like 70% of people experience some kind of trauma and the majority don't go on to develop PTSD. So just because somebody experiences trauma and is struggling in some way doesn't mean it's PTSD. I do think the unfortunate thing is some people think the only legitimate response, and for those who are just listening, I'm using legitimate with air quotes, to trauma is PTSD. And, and that's just not the case. Trauma affects people in lots of different ways. So that's kind of one misconception. On the flip side, I do see people sometimes just not even knowing about the symptoms of PTSD or not really making a connection between what they experience, a trauma, and how they may be struggling right now. And so maybe somebody not making the connection between if they did experience abuse in childhood and are struggling right now, PTSD isn't even something that's on the radar, or they don't think to bring it up to their therapist or the psychiatrist, or maybe thinking what they went through wasn't quote unquote traumatic enough. If somebody was almost sexually assaulted, there was an attempted assault, they might assume like, well, I wasn't actually raped. I can't have PTSD. And so those are two of the common misconceptions. But when it comes to actually PTSD itself, so it stands for post-traumatic stress disorder, it's really just a collection of symptoms. And again, it's just one way that people may kind of respond to a trauma. But in order to meet the diagnosis, somebody must have experienced a trauma using that definition we talked about earlier, experienced some of the symptoms I'll talk about in a second. And there must be some kind of functional impairment. So it's impacting them in causing problems at work or at school or in their relationships in some way. I guess I can talk about the symptoms in a second, but I guess, Dr. McNary, what are some of the things that you see in your practice with symptoms of PTSD and trauma? You know, I think it varies, but a lot of anxiety, a lot of avoidance, a lot of hypervigilance, sleep disturbance, those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. So we, when we think about PTSD, the symptoms actually fall into four clusters. The first cluster or area of symptoms are re-experiencing or intrusion symptoms. So this is really the idea that the trauma itself is kind of still active in the person's experience kind of at the forefront. And this can include things like somebody having really intrusive memories of what happened. They're not trying to think about it. It just pops up and there's a lot of distress. This can include nightmares about the trauma itself or, you know, just even kind of similar themes like violence or danger or loss flashbacks where a person feels like they're actually reliving the trauma, as well as what we call triggers to trauma-related cues. So the term is emotional or physiological reactivity to a trauma-related cue. So somebody's experiencing a trauma or has experienced one and then encounters something that 
reminds them of it. You know, they see someone that looks like a perpetrator or hears something or smells something. They may have a very strong emotional reaction, sadness, anger, intense fear, panic, shame, along with physiological responses. So upset stomach or heart racing or trouble breathing. And that can be at a conscious level, like they're very aware of the trigger, but sometimes it can be subconsciously that those things are triggered. So that's that first cluster of symptoms. Again, this idea that the trauma is very still active or kind of at the forefront for somebody. And the next kind of cluster of symptoms has to do with avoidance, as you said, which is really common. So because that first set of symptoms can be very upsetting and distressing, we see avoidance kind of showing up in two forms. One is internal avoidance, where somebody will just try really hard to suppress, not think about, not talk about what happened sweep it under the rug, try to keep themselves really busy, maybe use substances. So people can get really creative with how they try to avoid this sort of internal stuff, the memories, thoughts, and feelings about the trauma. And then there's kind of the external things that they might avoid. So the people or places or conversations or situations. And what I often see is that kind of avoidance can really grow over time and can get tricky with what people avoid. It can be tricky to kind of see the connection, but a common thing that people will avoid is crowds with PTSD. And sometimes the trauma has nothing to do with a crowd. So we're trying to make the connection here, but the characteristics perhaps in crowds, they might not feel like they're able to assess threats or danger properly. So they might just avoid them. Or maybe just not feel like they have control. Yeah. The loss of feelings of control, of not being able to protect themselves. Yeah. And even kind of like intimacy and and avoiding relationships. And so maybe the trauma has caused them to feel like, I don't want to get close to people if I'm going to lose them, right? If there was a traumatic loss, so they might just start, you know, avoiding relationships. So really this idea of avoidance is that second cluster area of symptoms. And then the third area of symptoms The technical term is negative alterations in cognitions and mood, which is just a fancy way of saying that people have changes in kind of the way that they think and feel. There's a lot of overlap in this symptom cluster with depression and, as you said, anxiety. So we may see people start to lose interest in things that they once enjoyed. We might see them having just more negative thoughts about themselves, the world, other people in general, having just a kind of persistent negative emotional state just our baseline emotions are pretty negative, like anxious or sad or angry most of the time. And in this kind of symptom cluster is really also where a big one can be misapplied blame, including a lot of self-blame. So this is where a lot of those, it's my fault, or I should have, or could have done something different. Um, That's why this thing happened to me. And all these types of things together can really lead to people feeling emotionally disconnected from people or distant. So relationships can really take a toll as well as feeling emotionally numb. And so I hear the phrase a lot, like, I mean, I know I love my partner and my kids, but I just don't actually feel it. There's this kind of emotional numbness that can really set in. So that's the third cluster of symptoms. And then the fourth cluster, we call them the arousal or hyperarousal symptoms. Again, going back to what you mentioned about sleep disturbances and hypervigilance are big ones, concentration difficulties, being really irritable, even kind of engaging in risky behavior. So the way that I think about this symptom cluster is your body reacting as if a threat is still present and you've got that sort of adrenaline and cortisol kind of constantly pumping through your body that can result in these types of things. 
So again, when we're diagnosing with PTSD, people must have symptoms, a certain number of symptoms in each of those clusters. And it's really that constellation of everything together is how we officially diagnose PTSD. And we help people kind of see how they're all connected. How would you explain why not everybody that experiences a trauma goes on to develop PTSD? So what are some factors that might contribute or make someone more susceptible to developing PTSD? So I'll start off by saying that there are definitely biological and genetic and brain changes that can happen after trauma. And that is definitely for another talk. So I'll just touch briefly on the psychological and the social perspectives that can contribute. So again, we know that a lot of people experience trauma, but not everybody goes on to develop PTSD. And so for the people who don't develop PTSD, we often see them having what's referred to as a natural recovery. So for many people that experience trauma in the immediate aftermath, they may have the things that look like PTSD. So they may have the nightmares and the intrusive thoughts, the trouble sleeping, some of those symptoms. But over time, we see kind of a couple of key ingredients that help them have this natural recovery. And so one is that the individual tends to have a supportive environment around them, people that they can talk about what happened, really get some emotional support, even get corrective feedback if they're saying things like, this is my fault, it's never going to get better. You know, they have that support around them to help them through that. And the second thing that helps people with that natural recovery is having really an approach form of coping. So personally working through and processing what happened to them, thinking about it, examining it, integrating it into their understanding of their life. But unfortunately, those key ingredients are often lacking for many people that go on to develop PTSD. So in my practice, I talk about this idea of resilience, but that some people just don't have the time or the opportunity or even the correct tools to really process what happened to them. And so I can just give a couple of examples of why someone may not have this natural recovery process. So one, it could be that, you know, they received really unhelpful messages in the past about how to deal with problems, sweep it under the rug. We don't talk about those things. If you just forget about it, it'll go away. Even common phrases like big girls don't cry or things like men don't express their emotions or don't feel their emotions. All those things really interfere with that approach form of coping. Or maybe there's just in an environment that doesn't allow for the processing of these experiences. So if you think about maybe somebody who's serving in combat, if they just watched their best friend get killed, but they're on a mission in the middle of a war zone, there may not be the time to actually process through that. And so just by default, that kind of needs to be stuffed and shut down to move on with the mission and really even to stay alive. Or, you know, if somebody may be moved to a new environment and doesn't have friends and they experience a trauma there, they may not be the social support or a single mom that goes through a trauma and her focus maybe just is on providing for her kids and getting through the day. And there might not be the ability to actually turn inward and experience and just out of necessity, there may need to be a stuffing down of what happens. So those are just kind of a couple of things that can get in the way. So really we see when those key ingredients are lacking, that social support isn't being accessed and there isn't that really approach type of coping being utilized for many reasons. That's really when that natural recovery gets interrupted and these other things start to creep in. So avoidance may start to become a coping strategy, but then can also become a symptom over time. And then these negative beliefs can start to take place that can lead to some of the long-term negative changes in how one sees the world and how they feel, things like that. 
Just thinking about someone who's listening and saying, oh, I've been through a trauma. How do I protect myself? Yeah. And we talk a lot when we're in kind of in treatment about how maybe those behaviors that develop after or those beliefs, they come from a very well-meaning place about protecting oneself. So if there's the belief that, well, the last time I went out alone, I got attacked. So now I have this belief that I can't go out alone. And so in turn, I don't go out alone. Those are meaning the desire to sort of protect the person. But we'd also explore what's the cost of that for them. And, you know, if their goal or what are their values of moving forward, how do we help them integrate what happened to them in a way that's going to maybe allow them to shift their beliefs into a more helpful way or change their behaviors to be kind of more in line with their values? You've done an excellent job describing such a complex topic. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Like, what is trauma? What is PTSD? One question is, you know, if the reader wants to learn a bit more about treatment of PTSD or just more about trauma, I'll make sure your practice information is on the episode description. Are there any resources you might guide people towards if they want to learn a little bit more about this? So the National Center for PTSD is a great website with lots of patient-facing information. That would be kind of the number one place that I would go to find really key evidence-based information about PTSD and its treatments. There's a lay book that's called The Body Keeps the Score. A lot of people have heard about it. It's like a number one Amazon bestseller. And it does a nice job with kind of explaining some things. And so I do think in that book, they leave out some information and There may be a little bit more misinformation about treatment approaches. I will talk about some treatments in a second, but it's still a good place to give kind of a general overview of how trauma can affect people. Yeah. And let's talk about the treatment part of it. Yeah. So there are a lot of really good treatments. And so over the last few decades, there's just been a lot of research studies that have been shown that there are treatment approaches that can be helpful for reducing the symptoms. So this is not a life sentence. The treatments tend to have a few things in common. The ones that are considered kind of the gold standards, they tend to be trauma-focused. And the way that I talk about this with folks is if there's this thing that happened to you, um, this event that's causing all these symptoms, you you can't sleep and you're angry and you're afraid, and we don't talk about that thing that's at the root, we're kind of just putting a band-aid. Maybe we could treat the insomnia or we could treat the anxiety or we could treat the anger separately. But if we don't get at the root, again, it's putting a band-aid and almost like playing whack-a-mole with the symptoms. They tend to kind of pop up elsewhere. So the evidence-based treatments tend to be ones that actually help with processing and making sense of the trauma, really kind of facing it. And so the names of them are prolonged exposure or PE is one of the gold standard treatments, cognitive processing therapy or CPT, EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I think that's a more common one that a lot of people have heard of. And then there's other things, written exposure therapy, narrative exposure therapy, trauma-focused CBT are some other ones. But some of the clinical practice guidelines, these are the ones that researchers kind of put out when they scour the research for studies that say like all the research together shows that these studies indicate that PE, CPT, and EMDR, three of the top ones with the most support for really helping to reduce these symptoms for many people in the long term. And this message that there is treatment. You know, my encouragement for folks, if they're listening and they're struggling, is reach out for help. Ask some providers if they provide any of these treatments. Go to the National Center for PTSD. Do a little bit more reading. And if you try one and it doesn't feel like it's a good fit for you, that doesn't mean that they're all not good. Sometimes it's just a matter of finding what what works for you. Yeah. 
Well, I appreciate you being on and explaining all of this. And I hope the listener found it helpful and enlightening about this topic. Last words before we say goodbye? Yeah, just resilience is possible. We can turn our pain into our purpose and our wounds into wisdom and our struggles into our strengths. So it doesn't have to be a life sentence when we experience these really, you know, at times horrific things and just finding a provider or a support system to kind of work through them can be really helpful for folks. Yeah. Well, thank you for being on. I appreciate your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Take care. This has been Mind Stories with me, Josephine McNary of Cal Psychiatry. With online psychiatry in California and 13 offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, ADHD, anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com and let us help you get back to your true self. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.